Kia ora, I'm Mark Easterbrook, and this is Voices of Aotearoa, the Going West podcast. This episode, Contested Spaces, is a panel discussion from the Shifted Ground event we held in April 2022. It's an exploration of story and history and the way the narratives we choose to accept reshape our view of the past, of people, and of places. On stage are Lucy McIntosh, curator of history at Auckland War Memorial Museum and author of the award-winning Shifting Ground, Deep Histories of Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, Richard Shaw, politics professor and author of Forgotten Coast, artist, documentary maker and storyteller Peter Ture, and journalist Tanya Page in the interviewer's chair. We're able to make this podcast thanks to our generous supporters, including AUT. They were there supporting us as a live literary festival and are here again as we find innovative ways to share our literary taonga in the digital epoch. Now, welcome to Contested Spaces, live from Going West 2022. Thank you. For your uh, welcome and tēnā koutou katoa, what a wonderful privilege it is to be in a room with people in 3D, right? I feel so lucky that we are finally here and that we're all here together for this fantastic kaupapa. Let me first introduce you to Lucy McIntosh. Lucy's the author of this fantastic book, Shifting Grounds, Deep Histories of Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. It's a... fascinating read, very layered, complex, wonderful narratives woven together and focused on three iconic parts of Auckland, places that many of us will be familiar with but which I guarantee you will see differently once you've read her book. Uh, they are Pukekawa, Auckland Domain, Maunga Keke, One Tree Hill, and the Otuatoa Stonefield at Ihumatau. She started her research and wrote the book way before Ihumatau hit the news, I'll, I'll have you know. <laughs> and Richard Shaw in the middle there, the author of this little gem, The Forgotten Coast. Richard's book is very personal. It's an exploration of three people from his past that he's descended from, some in the near past, some much farther out in the past, and that the one he's most distant from, Andrew, is a slightly uh, contentious but very interesting character, and we'll get into that in a moment. And of course, the wonderful Peter Tude, a man who breathes creativity, an artist, a storyteller, tangata Tangata Whenua, who walks these land and generously shares of his mātauranga and his pūrāko. We're very privileged to have you here tonight and is connected to Lucy through the museum where our pita is the, on the taumata a iwi. So I think we should start like all good stories start and because I'm a journalist I always start with a why. Firstly to you Richard, what on earth possessed you to open this Pandora's box in your own family. You could have kept it closed, but you ripped the lid off and you pulled out some skeletons. Why? Tony, I kept it closed for 54 years. It seemed like uh, time to open the box. Um, My father's death was one of the impetuses behind this, but uh, Rachel Buchanan, who is Ngatiawa, Tiatiawa and Taranaki Iwi, Ngāti Pākehā on her mum's side, has written quite a lot about Parihaka. Uh, I, I happened to read Rachel's book, The Parihaka Album, which is based on her PhD, as is Lucy's um, beautiful book too. And there were two questions at the end of Rachel's book, uh, which just sort of came off the page and grabbed me by the shoulders and shook me. And the questions were, what stories do your dead tell you and what do you know of your past? convergence of of circumstances, including very shortly after reading those words, seeing a photo which I'd looked at for 54 years on my mother's wall, which is of my great-grandfather, Andrew Gilhuli, who was the captain of the armed constabulary rugby team. The photo was taken at uh, Pangarehu Domain, which is a few kilometres away from Parihaka, in 1881, and I'd looked at that photo for 54 years. And until I read Rachel's book, it had never occurred to me to ask the obvious question, which is, what's he doing there? Why is he in that team? What is happening? How is it that I have reached this age in my life more than half a century and I haven't asked the obvious question? So I did. Wonderful. Very brave of you as well, I have to say. Lucy, for you, what was the motivation and why these three particular locations? Um, 
it's, it's hard to know where to start, but I think the, the, the very short answer, and I'll go on to the long one, but the short one would be that um, I felt that there were stories and histories of Auckland uh, that had been overlooked and that, that, um, uh, that weren't um, in any of the books that I had read about Auckland um, that were uh, important um, and uh, valuable and actually changed the way um, I think we see the past of this city. Um, and I felt that there were ways perhaps of telling those stories um, a little bit differently, with a different approach that might actually help to open up some of those stories and perspectives and experiences that, you know, that I hadn't come across um, in, in histories that I had read. Um, I guess the, the longer story is that um, it's, it's a culmination of, of, of 20 years of, of work um, uh, in which I've been, um, you know, working on, on what I think of as sort of the, the, the tangible bits of, of history. Um, so that's around uh, land and landscapes and um, uh, buildings and sites and objects, um, all of which have a sort of a spatial dimension to them. Um, and over that time, um, and working with some, some wonderful people who've, who've, who've taught me and guided me, I've learnt to sort of look at, um, look at our past um, in a different way and to take those aspects into account. And for me, they really raised um, a lot of stories and histories um, that I hadn't come across in, in the archives or in the written form um, and that told quite different stories about Auckland. Um, and I thought it was, um, I, th I think we're at a time where we're ready to, um, uh, you know, move across disciplines a little bit. So, you know, I felt it was time to push the boundaries of, of, of history as a discipline and to encompass um, a, uh, a wider, different array of sources um, that, uh, that, that encompass and, um, and incorporate many different perspectives. And so I thought, well, I will... Um, I let's let's try this, um, and so <laughs> so it's effectively um, you know six stories about Auckland through um, you know a grove of trees or a um, you know or, or a particular site or a mission station, um, and it really what it tries to do is let um, those stories uh, layered in those places um, tell themselves in some way, um, and it ends up with a inevitably with a very deep. Um, and kaleidoscopic view of, of history. Um, so that's the approach that I took. The three places, sorry, it's a long answer. The three places, um, I mean, they're really just starting points um, in a way for looking at the histories that we have under our feet. Um, but they're all, as you mentioned, they're all, um, but when I started writing, the two places were very well known, one wasn't. Um, but I, I felt that they were all really important places for understanding Auckland's history. I knew they all had aspects to them that told quite different stories than, um, than, than perhaps, uh, you know, many of the published um, histories. Um, and they're in different parts of Auckland too. So part of it for me was getting away from starting with a, a history that starts in Queen Street in 1840. It's sort of, what if you plant yourself here in this part? Um, and, and, you know, what about actually if you plant yourself here in Mangari? How does Auckland's history look? So um, uh, that's, that's probably enough said on that for now. But <laughs> it's a fascinating read, though. And for you, Peter... As someone who has, has treasured and, and told many of these stories yourself for decades, what's your take on the insightfulness, personal insightfulness in Richards and the, and the big picture exploration um, of, of Lucy's book? Refreshing to see these stories being told in this way? Well, first of all, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And I am a storyteller, which means I'm in awe of both of these people because they've got more than one letter of the alphabet and they know how to use them and they've written books and stuff. You can get away with it by telling stories and say, oh, I just got it wrong in the day or something like that, but you can't hide from a book and you're not hiding. And you're certainly not hiding when you expose your inner 
feelings of yourself and your family in the context of history when you do it like this. And so you open up something for all of us. You give all of us permission to do the same when you do that. And I, I, I really believe we're in a cusp of time where that's what we need to do. We need to give ourselves permission. And when I say that, I don't just mean Parker people. Māori people too, we've been through a couple of generations of not talking Māori and, you know, putting, trying to put those things aside and such. But it's also left a similar legacy of not talking about the things that have hurt us for fear that that would mean we won't like our neighbours or we won't be able to get on or we won't bring that up and such. But really it means that we don't, can't have deep, honest relationships with integrity as long as we've forgotten so many things. I call it the big D word, denial. Um, and I think that's something that envelops all of us. And so you've given us a little key to unlock that door of denial for all of us as people, as communities and families. So I want to thank you for that. I'm not sure if it answered the question, but just rolling straight along to Lucy. And, and I'm in, law, in awe of Lucy as well, because for 35 years now, I've been walking over my ancestral land, gathering and retelling the stories, reinterpreting, trying to find the truth in them, trying to find what's real and, and, and keeping them alive in a city where we've forgotten our history. We, we don't know it. If we lived in Venice, we'd know the history of Venice. But we live in Auckland, so we only know back to the arrival of Captain Hobson and the gate shuts there, and we don't know the rest. And it's still, it's still hidden from us, and I just think that's unfair. And it doesn't really empower us to understand our landscape. So not only that, but the way Lucy has explored it um, with those six stories that cover three sites and um, for someone like me it takes a bit going through the book where I just want to read all the bits on Ihumata straight away, I have to, you know, <laughs> and so you have that but then you okay, put that down and come back and read the book and see what the author's got to say. Um, and you reveal all of those things and, and in a timely manner, especially with, um, with Ihumata where uh, digital media showed how, um, or social media and, and such, showed how we're prepared to believe anything if it's a good story. And if Joan of Arc needs us to come and save a sacred burial ground, we'll be there. <laughs> Even if there's a bit of a question mark, what is a sacred burial ground or a wheat field? And unfortunately we didn't have all of your information at the, the early start of that. And so it became quite overwhelming um, for both um, protesters people who wanted to support protesters, and our um, intelligentsia as well. It, it became overwhelming with that social media um, hype and such. And what you, your book cuts through that with a knife of truth that um, just opens that all up. But unfortunately it came out after they'd already bought the land back. That's okay. That's details, okay, you know. details. <laughs> It's a win-win outcome, you know, eventually there will be houses and the local people will own them and everything like that. We have to let the grass grow for a bit, you know, and let all of that settle down. But um, that's, and that's only one aspect, one corner of your book, the, the revelations to do with the places we know. And we know these places, we've known them all of our lives and suddenly there's a reveal of so much and like how do we not know this and so when I read a book like yours the first thing I have to do is go and get counselling and process the anger <laughs> from, from you know being kept in the dark ages for so long and such like that and so both of your books give um, you know an emotional landscape we have to navigate as, as just as people and families and such so we can really take them in. They're books that you know, you'll read it, put it down and just come back to it later on when you've, you've processed all of that and then you can really um, read it and then you can start relating to it personally. That, that's how I find it anyway. And I'm still not sure if I answered your question because I forgot it. I can't so. remember what the question was now anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you're speaking there to one of my favourite lines from your book, Richard, where you talk about how people have been in the dementia ward of colonial history and I'm curious as to whether you would have counted yourself in the dementia ward and if you've completely checked out and what it's like on the outside. The dementia ward is a reference again to Rachel Buchanan. Um, there's a whole side story and some of you who know Rachel's work will know what it's a reference to. Her, her mum 
uh, her dad's mother on the Tiatiawa side was part of the Heke South in the wars in the 1830s. That, that part of Tiatiawa stayed there. She didn't come home. But Rawania Buchanan became a significant um, contributor to the construction of the village on the, on the Whenua that used to be Athletic Park. And, and the dementia ward in which Rawania and Rachel's mum Mary, who I knew from Taranaki days, um, Rachel and I did amateur theatre when we were kids together. They, Rachel's um, mother died in the ward that is known as the Rawinia Buchanan Dementia Ward. And Rachel has taken that idea of forgetting and applied it to Paga people absolutely like me who have forgotten the coast. I think that perhaps where the analogy falls down is that uh, Rawinia Buchanan, Mary Buchanan, didn't leave the dementia ward. There was no agency, there was no choice in there. I could easily see myself going back into it, I think. Really? Uh, it, after it wouldn't, all it wouldn't this, happen. after all that? The thing about forgetting, and this is what I really value about Buchanan's work, is she says, this stuff doesn't happen by accident. There is a, there is a purposiveness behind the act of forgetting. If you're a Pākehā person who's grown up through a family like mine, where within maybe 15 years of my great-grandfather having been present for Te Pahua Parihaka, present for the occupation. Did you know that there was an occupation for five years after Parihaka, that it wasn't just an invasion day story? I didn't know that until three or four years ago. Some of you will have. Uh, he came back, he farmed three pieces of land with his wife, all of whom, all of which were parts of the 1,966 acres of land confiscated by the Crown in 1865 and within 15 years of all of that occurring it's gone there was nothing in papers past there's nothing in my family history there are no stories about any of it my family's history starts on the day that my great-grandfather bought the first of the three family farms we have no deep history in my family at all and that doesn't happen by accident it's purposive. You have to invest in forgetting. You have to continue to forget all of the time. And so Rachel says you can stay in the dementia ward. You can choose to remain in there or you can leave. Uh, and I chose to step out of it. But I can see the appeal of going back into the dementia ward. I don't think I will, uh, Tanya. It, it isn't possible for me. Having learned the, the unsettled story of my settler family, it isn't possible for me to go back in there. But I find the analogy of the dementia ward and, and the, the fact that Buchanan talks about forgetting as a series of acts that are reenacted each time you see an image of Parihaka, you hear the Tim Finn song, you hear the Herbis, you can just walk away from it, which is what I did for 54 years. And it's agency. And I, have the, I, can, I can do that because I'm a Pākehā bloke, I can drive down that invasion road and I can see landscape but that I can talk to Mrs. Okoroa's whanau who see a trauma scape. That's a, I, I just kind of digress away from your question. No, I don't think I will go back into it. But, it. but it is not difficult for me to appreciate why it might be more comfortable for many Pākehā, and, and, and you will all have your own versions of becoming or being Pākehā, but I can see why, quite why you would choose to stay in that ward, because it means you get to move on. It means you get to be one people. It means you get to tell the settler story, not the unsettling story. So there are some quite compelling reasons for remaining there, I think. Absolutely. What I love about both books is that they're grounded in this physicality, you know, parihaka, taranaki maunga, the maunga, and, and landscapes that you talk about in your book as well. How important was it for you that these, your book was, was grounded in locations and in whenua, and how did that influence the stories you were able to tell? Um, well, it was my starting point. So I, I really, um, and in a way, that was my, my methodology. So I really tried to stick within that and um, to, to explore the stories that were coming out of these places um, as, as fully and deeply as I could, so it was cent it was absolutely central to um, to, to my approach, um, and I think what that ends up with is um, not a sort of a, 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 it's not at all an authoritative or an epic or an all encompassing history of Auckland at all. It's just um, it's looking up 
it's looking sort of down and deeply into particular places and then looking upwards and outwards from there, back out at Auckland and saying, well, how does this change the story from this particular point? So um, that was a really, that was just something that I kept coming back to was, um, was yeah, was, was the land, really, yeah. Um, and, and, and I think as Richard's talked about, and as Richard's book does so well as well, um, it, it uncovers a lot of stories that you can't find in the, in, the, in, the, in the written records because they are colonial records and they have been recorded by particular people. And those stories that you're looking for, um, uh, they're very hard to find in those, in those narratives. And it's not until, and what I so enjoyed about your book too, Richard, was that process of... Um, uh, was how you unpacked the process of um, researching the book and your findings and your personal responses to those findings as well as you did. But, you know, when you were talking about um, going back to the maps and looking at the, the survey records and the, uh, the property titles and uh, with the magnifying glass, I believe, um, you know, that's where um, these other stories start to, to come out um, that aren't... Um, apparent, I think, in, in, the, you know, in, in some of the other sources as well. So you, that, it's really when you start sort of looking at what's happening to the land and follow the land that you know, these other um, stories and perspectives um, start, to, start to appear, I think. Most landscapes are constant reminders, aren't they? You can't see them, but behind you are running some of the, the images from your book. Um, and I'm interested in your take on this, Peter, because you know, I've, I've been to the museum and the domain, as I'm sure we all have many times in, in my life, and, and, and really only sort of seen that, that huge, impressive, imposing stone building. And it wasn't until reading your book that I realised the connection with Te Whero Whero and he was a stone's throw away. Is there any sense for you, knowing all of this and, and, and seeing it brought to the light in, in this way, of, of frustration that that so many of us kind of, kind of go there and wander around and now there's a T-Rex there, you know, there'll be lots of kids there knowing that. But, but not far away is this location of this really iconic uh, Chief Te Whero Whero. Well, I think it speaks to the dementia ward having many forms. Mm -hmm. And some of those there forms are things we really like, you know, and so that helps to sustain the dementia ward. It gives us a, a picture that we're comfortable with. Um, and it doesn't disrupt, and, and this still afflicts the museum today. If you look at the recent um, Auckland exhibition, it doesn't really say anything about Auckland, other that's a good place for new immigrants. Um, so it, there's dementia with regard to what the rest of the history is still today. Um, yeah, so <sighs> the dementia ward permeates so many aspects of our, of our culture and society, from our schooling, from our civic administration, through um, our arts institutions and such like that. And so, um, I've forgotten the question again, but I think it relates to it. We have to unravel all of these things to find the core that can help take us ourselves beyond our own dementia. I, I find that in a personal sense, and that's why it was easy to engage with Lucy and her book because um, in the past I've done it with various, you know, we have references, authors have written this, 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 that and the other that we can check on. But we have to look at it with the lens that you're talking about. We have to look at it and what else did they write? What bit has survived? Why has only that bit survived? And why did they write it in that way? When you look at the background of the person, you know they knew more than that. But they've only written this much. And then we start to see the, the nature of the construction of the dementia ward meant that that person could only write that at that time. They couldn't write the rest. Mm. So they left us a clue. And so you start finding those things in there which are triggers to help us as we move beyond dementia. I agree with you, Lucy, in the way that, Richard, I really loved in your book how I felt like there was at times this stream of consciousness like I'm... Was he there? Wasn't, wasn't he? You're talking yourself into it. You're pulling yourself away from it. I really, I really found that, you know, that's so fascinating. But it started originally, didn't it, with you wanted really to explore your, your great uncle, the priest, uh, Richard or, or Dick, right? Went off to Rome, 
finished a degree in record time um, and came home and had a, a tragic end. But he was your he was your beginning point, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Um, in my day job, I'm an academic, and um, and I have a PhD. Uh, Lucy has a better PhD, a much better PhD <laughs> than mine is. Mine's rubbish and hers is beautiful. Um, my, I, I, I only knew sort of two stories of my Uncle Dick. I've spotted him up there. He's, he was a really beautiful, <laughs> it's another point at which we kind of part company, he was this beautiful blonde man who had, who had a beautiful voice and he was a boxer. Uh, he won the mosquito weight division when he was at Sacred Heart College up here. I don't even know what that is, but it was little and small and nippy. He came here on a boat from Taranaki um, in the days when Catholic boys either went north to Sacred Heart College or south to St. Pat's in uh, Te Whanganiwatara in Wellington. And he was precocious academically, uh, and the Roman Ch Catholic Church lined him up from a long way off, and they sent him off to Rome. He went to the Lateran University, and he completed three degrees in 18 months. Um, one of which is a, told you. So, you know, <laughs> the bar is so far up there that you just can't get close to it. Anyway, he fascinated me because all I ever knew about him when I was growing up was he was good looking, he could box, he could sing, and he got a, he got a PhD. It was a doctorate of divinity. By the time he was uh, 20, he was ordained as one of the youngest um, priests in the Southern Hemisphere. He had to wait a year until the Pope would give him a dispensation to become a priest. But he got tuberculosis when he was in Rome and he came home and he died. Uh, and, and so I have, over the years, told myself the story of a, of a kind of a, a political priest lost to a, a disease that ravaged him. Um, and Dick and I part company, because I'm not entirely sure from his correspondence that he was particularly bothered. He carried that as, as his cross on earth. The connection, I think, to what we're talking about here is that the, the name of the thesis, I, I recall distinctly discovering out, courtesy of a librarian at the Pontifical uh, Irish College in Rome, contacted me and said the name of the thesis uh, translated from the Italian is the irredeemable evil of the lie. And there are, um, there are lies in this book that my family have inadvertently constructed, I don't know. There are lies that the colonial administration absolutely created through the legislative whitewashing of the theft of people's land and then dressing it up and being told off by their own West Coast Commission for having done so. Uh, so there are lies and misconceptions and forgotten stories behind my family and my uncle's thesis is about the lie, but I can't find it. So I don't know what he was talking about. I'm pretty sure that he wasn't talking about confiscation of people's land or the, or the deep history <laughs> of anywhere. It would have been a theological position, but I'm fascinated by the fact that he went there, that he studied, and in 18 months, he did the equivalent of a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a PhD. And I, I'm just intrigued by that. The, the life of the mind is something that, um, that I'm deeply attracted to and have, and have been privileged enough to spend my adult life doing but, but I would be nowhere near that league. So he, he interests me. But the other thing that interests me is there is no part of his story that talks about Chao Māori. There is nothing about his story that has to do with the land. There is nothing to do with Parihaka. All of those things that are foundational to the position from which Dick was launched into uh, putative greatness as a, as, as a Roman Catholic priest who would have done a political job of work is absent from his story. So that too, I think, is a part of the lie that I'm still struggling to unpack. Was it a was it a light bulb moment or was it a gradual development when you realised that actually it was Andrew before him who cast the longest shadow? Uh, not a light bulb moment at all. Andrew, the, the three men in my book are my father and Dick and Andrew. I, I initially started to write the book because I had, there were conversations that I needed to have with my father who died suddenly at Waikato Hospital. And there were things that I hadn't said to him that I wish I had. So I started the book trying to do that and trying to tell Dick's story and trying to find a reason to even write a book. It didn't even start out as a book. And then Andrew just hove quietly into view. And I know the least about him. There is no correspondence that survives. I only know Andrew through the records of the colonial state, but, but he is the one who is at the heart of that story. The, the one that I know most, least about and the one that I uh, have least 
affective connection to as the one who has most to say in this book, but he just quietly demanded to be engaged with. Mm. Three very strong, very different characters in your book. And what I loved, Lucy, about yours is that, yes, you're talking about big spaces and big histories, but you are so skilled at pulling out particular characters. And I found Te Putini fascinating. I'd never heard of him, but he was... Um, I see you. There's a look there. <laughs> I found it remarkable, his his awakening when he realised that the partnership he thought he as Māori had entered into was not what he hoped and he had dreamed it could be. Tell me a little bit about him. So, um, uh, Epiha Putini, um, or Te Rangitahua, um, was a um, Ngāti Tamaoho leader. Um, and he was very involved with the, um, and led the um, establishment of the uh, mission station at Ihumatau. Um, and so he first, I, I, he's not present in any histories of Auckland at all. Um, so I had never heard of him, but when I started looking at the missionary records, um, his name kept popping up. Um, and what I realised from following that was, you know, the way that the, the mission station at Ihumatau was, was not, it was there from um, uh, 18, for about 1845, 1846 until the forced evictions um, from Ihumatau um, and neighbouring uh, Māori settlements in 1863. Um, and there's been actually really little written about it, but the way the story has been told um, uh, is that it was established by um, the missionaries um, and that it was their initiative um, and that they taught Māori an awful lot is sort of the extent of it. And when I started looking into these records, um, it just he, he just he just leapt out at me as somebody and actually there was there was quite a lot um, there was quite a lot about him that kept coming up. He, he you know, he he actually his own voice was uh, was very was very strong because he wrote letters to um, to the editor um, of the, the Times in London, putting his view across. Um, he was interviewed by missionaries, um, so his own responses and answers are there as well. So his own voice actually um, became really really strong, and he and 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 as I looked into it, um, I could see very clearly that he was the one who had initiated the mission station there. He'd asked for it and asked for it. Um, and um, when it was refused, he'd actually established his own one um, over in the Afitu Peninsula first, built his own church, um, and, uh, and then came across to Ihumatau, um, and then they established the mission station there. And he was involved with running it um, for many, many years. Um, and just that relationship that he had, what it, what it really sort of brought out was this relationship between leaders like Putini and others um, and, uh, and um, missionaries and settlers and the government and this very complex uh, relationship um, that was established there where Māori stayed on their ancestral lands um, uh, you know, after 1840, so immediately there's a very different story about Auckland there um, in that Māori are very much present um, and, um, uh, and continuing to, um, uh, to be present on their ancestral lands um, in early Auckland, which has you know, always been told as a very um, English story. So, um, so yeah, Putini just... Um, he was an extraordinary character, um, and the efforts that he made to try and make um, a really productive and constructive uh, relationship there at that time was just was was really really striking to me. And it's a um, uh, you know it's a very um, uh, a poignant story as well because he actually died in 1857. I know Peter's got his theories about about that death, um, but it's just reported in the, in, the, in the newspaper that he was on his way uh, to visit the governor 
uh, with a number of um, Māori who, who, who were wanted by the governor. So he was delivering them to the governor and he died suddenly um, in 1857. Um, but it was from that as well, it was from his tangi at Ihumatao, uh, was also the event where, um, was one of the events where um, the Māori king was appointed as well. So um, he was actually a very influential person in, in early Auckland um, and he's just invisible in, in written records and to me he was you know, an important um, protagonist and shaper of early colonial Auckland. Yeah. Peter, let me bring you back in here. What's your take on, on the drawing out of these formerly unseen characters into the open and and woven into a narrative like the one Lucy has produced? Well, for one thing, a character like Putini, if he'd had social media, if he was on Facebook, <laughs> you know, he, he would have been okay. As it was, you know, the newspapers here wouldn't publish this stuff anymore, <laughs> it's too contentious. But he managed to get published in the Times in England. You know, and so he got support from England, and um, it's crazy when you. Put it wasn't it like enough. That. They're too far away. It takes them six months to come out here and have a conversation or whatever. With no Zoom, no Zoom then. Um, you know, so <laughs> history would have been different eh, yeah. if if there had been those things. Um, and Putini stands out because he was the character he was, um, but there are. There are lots of other hey, profiles you notice in the shadows eh? and perhaps they'd stand out just as much if we shone a torch on them. We don't know, eh? but he certainly comes alive eh, for his actions and also for that sweep of time. That was, um, it was a very transitional time. We just had the musket wars, 28 years of warfare amongst ourselves where we looked after our Pākehā and made sure they didn't get hurt. And, and then um, coming back into Auckland with Ngāti Whātua and Waikato Te Whero Whero, he was part of that. And then he married Te Whero Whero's daughter. And Te Whero Whero, as you know, became the first Māori king. But at that time, he was the Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, of this place. You know, he was the ultimate warrior and such like that. So he was a very important general and, and, and that marriage and stuff. And then going to school in the Hokianga and learning how to be a missionary. And he was a missionary as well, you know, with the, the landscape of what he did. Missionary doesn't figure in there, but he was a missionary as well. He was a gardener, he was an entrepreneur, he was all of these things. And you can see why he was so hated. Hey, I, I don't like clever dicks either. But, um, <laughs> you know, and he was trying to create the promise of two peoples living together and having a relationship with each other, you know, and so part of forgetting that is like that plaque up on Mount Eden where it says, this land was purchased from the Maoris from 23 blankets mm -hmm. and, you know, so whatever, um, rather than the gift that it was and the hope for a relationship. And so he was the, the classic example of that, trying to build a relationship so we could all, you know, be dynamically prosperous together. Um, you with your technology and, and, you know, with our land that we'll share. Share. No, no, not all of it. Share. Come on. Uh, yeah, so it, it, having all of these things revealed is, is, is fantastic. And I'm, again, I'm totally not sure if I answered the question. <laughs> You're forgiven because you're so entertaining. <laughs> Richard, when you started out on this journey and, and, and delved deeply into some of the, the, the secrets of, of your family, I suppose. In doing so, you're also talking about an experience that for, particularly for Taranaki Māori, but for, for Taranaki Iwi, but for, for many Māori, was, was deeply painful and, and, and people still bear the scars and live the legacy of that, that pain um, from Parihaka. Was that a tricky thing for you to navigate in, 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 in broaching that subject? And, and how did you navigate that? Unlike Peter, I can give you a one-word answer, <laughs> um, which is yes, it was, it was difficult to navigate, uh, but it didn't become clear to me that I would need to navigate it until I found myself in it. And then I... Um, I keep talking about Rachel Buchanan just because I think that of all of the people I've read who have written about Parihaka, um, she is the one who, 
only partly because I know Rachel. She's the one who is the most challenging for me. So she, 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 she doesn't let you get away with anything. And one of the things that she says in her books is that Parihaka has become for many non-Māori or non-Taranaki iwi uh, almost an extraction site. You go there and you, and you take things or you write stories or you presume that because this story is associated with an event which has become increasingly iconic in the context of the colonial history of this country, that it is, uh, it's in the public domain and therefore it's there, you can go and take it. And she says you have to be really careful not to take other people's stories, to presume that it's yours to do. And I did not want to do that uh, for very obvious reasons. Um, and so one of the things that I did was I, I sat on that book for uh, close to a year. I, I sent the manuscript I had a number of, uh, not to the extent that Lucy has. Lucy's acknowledgement section is one of the really interesting parts of, the, of her book because you can see the networks and the webs and the, and, the, and the people who are around her when she writes this beautiful, deep history. And mine is not like that. But I have uh, Tangata Whenua friends who are the actual brave people who I work with, who I spoke with, all of whom are from Taranaki. When the manuscript was um, completed, I, I did not want it published until somebody at Parihaka had said, you can publish that. Not, I support this, not Anya, not anything, just this can go. Uh, and so I sent the manuscript through to uh, some people at Parihaka and, and waited. Um, and they had far better things to do with their time than, than, than read a manuscript written by me. And, uh, but they were exceptionally gracious and at some point, it was made clear that it would be appropriate and acceptable to proceed with that. But I am very, um, I am mindful of the importance of not presuming, of just being, of just realizing. And this has taken me ne until I'm nearly sixty to realize that there are sometimes then that you just should not know something. There are some things that are not yours. I speak of myself, not mine to know. Um, there is a propensity, particularly for academics, to think, well, everything is to be known. That is the purpose of the academic vocation. But there are many things that are not to be known. And there are times when living with the uncertainty or the lack of knowledge, just staying with the not knowing is the right thing to do. It's not for me to, de to determine whether or not I got those, that balance right. But, but the fact that some heavy hitters at Parihaka said, that book can go. Is, uh, is sufficient for me. Lucy, your acknowledgements are extensive, and Peter is here obviously to support. You know the the depth that you reached out to to Tangata Whenua to explore these ideas and these in these narratives. Was there one particular point that you thought, oh, I'm not sure about this. I might be. I might oh, be. What was the hardest bit? <laughs> Well, you know, I think um, I grappled with, with that throughout the writing of the thesis and the book, and I'm still, I'm still grappling with that, and I'm still learning about it. Um, so um, I can speak to some particular moments, but I think just in, you know, in general, I'm, I'm very um, aware that there's a weariness about Pākehā, um, talking about Māori stories, and for very good reason. There's been a lot of damage um, done. Um, and, uh, and as Richard mentioned, a lot of the relationships have been um, extractive. So for very good reason, there's, um, there's a weariness there. And I am um, you know, have been aware of my um, limitations um, in being able to reach you know, and, and, and tell these stories. And, and, and again, it's been one of the... The judgments for me is, um, you know, what stories to tell and what stories not to tell as well. Um, so I've been grappling with that throughout, um, uh, and part of that is uh, what what Peter calls the colonial assumptions, um, which you know, and I've been really lucky to have people like Peter and others who um, have been generous enough to um, uh, to to review and to give feedback and to give advice. Um, throughout um, 
but you know I all I I think for me I felt like um, as a historian there have been um, too many histories that have been written um, that have completely overlooked Maori history, um, and um, I think it's you know as it's part of your job as a historian to write about. Um, you know, experiences and perspectives and events that have shaped the places that we live in um, in our present times. And um, I don't think you can write about um, Auckland history without understanding uh, or doing your best to understand those experiences and perspectives um, as well. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, fundamentally for me, I don't think you can explain um, you know, 19th and 20th and 20th century, uh, 21st century um, Auckland without understanding or, or, or looking at some of those deeper histories that, that sit underneath everything that happened since. Um, so um, I, for me, my process was to, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to have engaged with and worked with um, with people who have advised me over the years. So my first starting point was to go back to those individuals and those marae um, and, um, and seek support for what I was doing. Um, and I've been really lucky to have um, exceptional advice, as I say, including from, from Peter um, and from others who have um, walked alongside me um, and uh, given me feedback, told me off when I need to be told off. Um, and, uh, and I think for me it's been about um, asking for feedback but not expecting it, um, uh, you know, as Richard mentioned. Um, and when I do get feedback, uh, it's taking that on board um, and, uh, and actually including that feedback in the, and being willing to change what I'm going to write. Um, and being willing to not include things that are that are not comfortable um, for because I think there's care needed um, and I guess behind it is the knowledge that um, you know histories um, and writing can be powerful um, and they can impact and they do impact on people today and I think you know as historians we've often written about the past without a lot of care and thinking about the fact that actually it's um, uh, it, it's very much a present history for many people. Um, so um, uh, that was, I'm yeah. Glad, I'm glad you put it like that, that it's a present history, because I felt quite emotional in reading your book when we got to the part with Sir John Logan Campbell talking about deciding what he wanted to erect on Mangakeke, a One Tree Hill, and the discovery of Koiwi in the Maunga and you paint such a powerful picture of the juxtaposition of those two, two things. Um, and, and I found that really quite, quite touching and mm. found that actually very well, emotional. That, that was the diff one of the most difficult moments that you, that you mentioned. And I think, you know, with that, um, with that particular story, you know, I did go back to Peter and I went back to others and said, are you comfortable with this being here? Because um, if not, it's, I, you know, I'm taking it out. Um, so, um, it, and, I, and I got the go-ahead that actually, yes, to, to, to include it. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was, to answer your question, that was probably one of, you know, one of the, the more difficult, um, not difficult, but just... Um, you know, I, I was aware of, um, very aware of my limits as a Pākehā writer, writing about, um, you know, some, some of these aspects. And I think, again, I've conversations with Peter over the years. I've, I've pulled, you know, there are areas where I've pulled back and, um, uh, and have just put out, um, it's enough, I think, to put out a poe or to put out a fact um, and then to just sit back from it and let others pick that up um, if they if they want to and take it because I feel like I've reached the limit of what I can say or what I well, you know what I can um, add add to that um, as a Pākehā historian so um, so I agree with Richard there's a you know there, there's always a tension there and it, and it and there should be and it's uncomfortable and it should be as a as I think Pākehā historians um, so it's just working out where 
you know, and, and, and each of us are, at the end of the day have to decide for ourselves what's ethical and what's and what's not. So, um, but for me, you know, I, I, I just hope that I have done um, justice to, you know, to those stories that have been generously shared with me. So, very long answer, sorry. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I think it's been a really fascinating corridor. Unfortunately, I think we are out of time, but I would encourage everyone here, if you haven't already, uh, to get a copy of these books because they are challenging. They challenge us to get comfortable with the uncomfortable and you'll never look at Auckland or Taranaki Maunga the same again. And I would ask of you also, um, well I want to leave you with a question basically, is there someone in your past is there a street that bears your family name? Is there a Monga uh, that you know, maybe it's somewhere that you're going to go for your Sunday stroll tomorrow, I don't know, um, that you know you don't know the other side of the story? And I challenge you to, and ask of you, to be brave enough uh, to face, to go through the door and ask the question and, and find out a little more. So thank you very much. Paki Paki for our wonderful panel here. Keep it through day, Richard Shaw. And Lisa McIntosh. Thanks for listening to Voices of Aotearoa, a podcast of archival recordings from the Going West Literary Festival. This series has been produced by James Littlewood and edited and presented by me, Mark Easterbrook following on from the work of our founding podcast editor, Robin Mason. Marshall Smith makes us sound amazing, Marigold Janicic is our graphic designer, and Melissa Lang manages the technical side of our online platforms. You can explore our ever-growing library of audio and video online at goingwestfest.co.nz. A huge thanks to our key supporters and funders, Creative New Zealand, the Waitakere Rangers Local Board, AUT, Auckland Libraries, and the Trusts here in West Auckland.